Hello, and welcome to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast on the COVID-19 pandemic with Dr. Michael Osterholm. Dr. Osterholm is an internationally recognized medical detective and director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, or CIDRAP, at the University of Minnesota. In this podcast, Dr. Osterholm will draw on more than 45 years of experience investigating infectious disease outbreaks to provide straight talk on the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Chris Dahl, reporter for CIDRAP News, and I'm your host for these conversations. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Ostrom Update podcast. This is the 57th episode of our podcast on the COVID-19 pandemic, and will be the last of our weekly episodes. But don't worry, we will still be here every other week to provide insight and analysis on the pandemic, to answer your questions, to share some pandemic acts of kindness, and to continue calling balls and strikes. And we'll still be posting the podcast on Thursday mornings. This week on the podcast, we're going to focus on some of the big lingering questions that remain as cases continue to drop here in the United States and some glimmers of a global decline start to emerge. Among those questions are how much of a threat is posed by the B1617 variant that first emerged in India and has now taken hold in the United Kingdom. We'll also discuss the continuing controversy over the origins of the coronavirus, concerns about the upcoming Tokyo Olympics, and answer some listener questions about breakthrough infections and risk assessment in the wake of the CDC's new mask guidance. But first, as always, we'll begin with Dr. Elstrom's opening comments and dedication. Well, thank you, Chris, and welcome to everyone again to another episode of uh, our podcast. Uh, we are so pleased that you could join us, and uh, as I say, week after week, uh, and meant from, sincerely from all of us at SIDRAP, we appreciate all of the uh, feedback we get from you, uh, the suggestions, the ideas. And as you know, over the course of the past uh, several weeks, we've been looking carefully at the future of the podcast. Uh, we're committed to this podcast uh, for as, ever as long as COVID's around. But as you know, we, uh, as Chris just noted, uh, are going to be going to a once every two week format. Um, to give some perspective to that, let me just say it's hard to believe that we've actually done 62 episodes since this podcast uh, series started. This includes 57 regular episodes, three live updates, one holiday special, and one special episode uh, on mass and science on June 3rd of last year. Uh, we will continue to uh, carefully look at the podcast uh, information and how it is best serving you. Uh, if for some reason uh, we find that there are challenges with the every uh, biweekly or every two-week uh, podcast, we'll surely go back and reconsider that. Or if there are current and urgent issues that come up, we will surely consider doing a podcast on short-term notice uh, to uh, provide you with the kind of information that you have come to expect from us. Um, let me just say that in this process of hearing back from you, uh, we learned two things. One is the fact that COVID is still very much a real part of your lives, and it will continue to be. And I'll talk about that today. Even if you're vaccinated, if even if you feel as if somehow you've gotten this get-out-of-jail card, uh, which surely is a powerful one, COVID will continue to be a part of our lives. And so we hope to continue to address those issues in a way that's helpful to you. The second thing we've learned and it, it was really a follow-up to a point that I made in the closing uh, to a previous podcast in which I noted that there is so much more good in this world than there is bad. 
And we must never lose sight of that in spite of the fact that we're surrounded by bad. And I think this podcast uh, interaction between us at SIDRAP and you and the community has clearly demonstrated that. I have seen so much good in the people who listen to this podcast, who respond back to this podcast, who share this podcast. So I, I just want to leave uh, this opening on that sense of, of um, fullness that I have for all of you for what you do in terms of taking this information and moving it into the community. It's in that light that this week's dedication uh, really uh, is to many of us on this podcast. And I say many of us because I'm one of them. This is really dedicated to the people who continue to struggle. The people that aren't quite sure, do I feel comfortable or not going into that public place, even though I've been vaccinated, even though uh, you know I may not be required or I may be required to wear a mask, what does that mean? Uh, how do I have this discussion about who gets vaccinated and who doesn't? This is for all those people who are out there wondering about how do I interact with family members who may have some form of immunodeficiency or immune suppression, whether it be through drugs or otherwise, how do I share the world of my children, particularly those under age 12, with others in the community? What do I do? And so we know that there are many struggles that will continue to move forward, and this podcast is dedicated to you. Now, with that, I cannot help myself, and everyone will have to indulge me. If nothing else, you just have to say, well, there he goes again, okay? But, you know, getting to this point in June every year is one of the highlights of my year. I love light. I'm happy to share with you that here in Minneapolis, St. Paul, the increase in light over the course of the last week has been 17 minutes, 57 seconds. Think of that. That's pretty remarkable. Uh, we're now at uh, 15 hours, 15 minutes, and 40 seconds of light compared to where we were at the winter solstice of 9 hours and 4 minutes and 39 seconds. And we will continue to gain, also slowly, more light between now and, of course, uh, next month. So thank you again for being with us today. I hope that the information we provide you is what is helpful to you as we all navigate uh, this world of COVID. So, Mike, although global COVID-19 cases have declined now for the past four weeks, the pandemic is still raging on in India, Southeast Asia, and Latin America and the Caribbean, where the death toll from the pandemic passed one million last week. Do you think this is the last big wave of the pandemic, or is it too early to tell at this point? Well, after living through the B117 introduction here in the United States in January and February, and uh, considering the implications of that relative to what had happened in Europe in just the preceding months, and then realizing it didn't happen like many of us thought would, um, my level of humility for predicting the future has taken on even a new measure of caution. Um, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to understand and predict what's happening, but we have to also appreciate that these variants are doing what they're going to do. And how they impact on the world, I think, is, is still a big question. We have to understand that today, with 8 billion people on the face of the earth, we still have a lot of people who have not yet been infected with this virus, for which they will be the cases of tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. And uh, so that I don't believe for a moment that we have, in a sense, infected the whole world so that either people have developed immunity following infection or have died 
or have been vaccinated. There's a lot that are not in those three categories. So to talk about what the future might look like, I think we have to again come in with a real dose of humility. Um, I think that the uh, pandemic will continue to rage around the world in countries that have not had access to vaccine. Uh, when you look at low and middle income countries right now, less than one half of 1% of the population in those countries have had access to vaccine. Uh, you know, these are still large forests just waiting to burn with this virus. And so from that perspective, consider what's happening right now is hardly the final act. If we do look at global numbers, uh, I am happy to report that we're seeing the numbers continue to come down, even with the potential deficiencies in reporting. Um, last week, 4.14 million cases reported over the week. That's down more than 687,000 from the previous week, and it's mostly due to declining cases in Europe and Southeast Asia. More specifically, India is actually decreasing right now. Deaths are also down uh, nearly 2,000 from the previous week. At last week, it was at 84,300 deaths. But we do see regions with increasing cases. South America had an 8% increase in cases over the past week, Sub-Saharan Africa 19%, and East Asia and Oceania 5%. Let me just make a comment about Sub-Saharan Africa. I think this one is, in fact, the next powder keg that's ready to blow. Much as we saw what happened in India, uh, I think that we're going to see potentially some of the similar issues in Africa. Recently have seen data showing that while the continent's overall average age is much younger than the rest of the world, with many more people under age 29 than anywhere in the world, um, and these people typically experience milder illness, we are seeing an increasing uh, picture of severe illness in Africa. And I think we're going to see more uh, activity there. Closer to home with Latin America, We've now surpassed 1 million total COVID deaths. As you mentioned, as of last week, this is 30% of the global total. And despite less than 9% of the world's population is from this region. So 30% of the deaths, 9% of the population. Uh, if you look at the uh, number of deaths in, in Latin America, about 90% have come from just five countries, Brazil, Mexico, Colombia, Argentina, and Peru. If we actually look at incidence of new cases, eight of the world's top 10 countries with the highest average new daily cases per capita are in Latin America. Uruguay is number two, Argentina three, Costa Rica four, Paraguay five, Trinidad and Tobago six, Colombia seven, Chile eight, and Brazil nine. So right here, not far from home, and basically... Uh, the Western Hemisphere, you can see the impact that this is having. Uh, of note, after a record high peak in mid-April, Uruguay saw uh, declines in cases and deaths, but now they're back on the rise again. The highest seven-day average for new daily deaths per capita in the world has occurred there, 1.6 daily deaths per 100,000 residents. And uh, why this is occurring, we're not sure. P1, the variant that originally was discovered in Brazil, is surely playing a key role there. Uh, Paraguay has the second highest seven-day average of new daily deaths per capita in the world, uh, and the numbers continue to climb. Argentina is battling its largest surge of cases and deaths to date, leading the country's president to order a national lockdown for the next week and a half. Uh, of note, Argentina has the third highest per capita death rate in the world. I just want to reiterate something that I had emphasized before. Here we have India, Pakistan, and Nepal 
one of the clear, real hotspots in the world. And then we have this area in Latin America, including Argentina, Paraguay, and Uruguay. And note that they are both in very interesting geographical positions. Nepal, India, and Pakistan are at 30 degrees north latitude from the equator. And Paraguay, Uruguay, and Argentina are at 30 degrees latitude south. Here we have these two groups of countries that are equal distant from the equator. And if there should be seasonality found in terms of uh, occurrence according to winter months, you would expect that we'd see just the opposite of what's happening right now. And so I'd be very cautious about interpreting how we look at the issue of seasonality. And I think these two countries really help demonstrate that. We're going to talk later about Japan uh, and the Olympics, but just emphasize that right now overall cases in Japan are starting to decline, but certain cities in the country are experiencing major challenges, which is now being attributed to B117. And uh, something that, again, is happening in Japan that just didn't happen here like we thought it might. Osaka, the nation's second largest city, is running out of hospital beds, ventilators, and drugs. Uh, And this has really been a huge challenge for them, given the fact that the Olympics are on their way. Uh, We've seen the director of the Kendai University Hospital in Osaka stating this week, simply put, this is a collapse of the medical system. That's what they're seeing there right now. Only 5.2% of the population has received at least one dose of vaccine, and a more less than 50% of healthcare workers there have had vaccine, which, of course, is a challenge going into this continued transmission and the Olympics. As you also may know, on Monday, the CDC issued a Level 4 travel advisory for Japan, telling all U.S. travelers to avoid all travel to that country. In terms of Africa, after a five-week decline, cases have are now starting to increase there, with several countries reporting substantial rises, including South Africa and Kenya. In Europe, nearly all the European countries are experiencing relatively low levels of COVID activity. This is great news. Just one country in Europe made the list for the top 10 countries with the highest new daily case rate per capita. Guess which one it is? Sweden, number 10. Uh, and this has really been, a, a again, another commentary on how countries handle the pandemic and are they doing the right thing. Let me just close out Europe with uh, an update on, on the UK because it's been mentioned repeatedly with regard to the new uh, uh, variant uh, first seen in India, uh, the B1617.2. And uh, right now, with 57% of the population having received at least one dose of vaccine, and 34% fully vaccinated, cases and deaths in the UK have plummeted since their record peak in January. This is great news. Uh, The seven-day average daily cases now is about 2,600. The average daily deaths is only six. But despite this success, cases have crept up slightly throughout May, coinciding with the arrival and the establishment of the B1617.2 in various areas of the country, particularly in some areas of England, in some of the a lower socioeconomic status areas uh, where crowding uh, is part of the uh, local picture. Um, there has been a, an increase in cases due to 617.2. And uh, we'll have to see where this takes in uh, England. Uh, right now, about 50% of the cases there are due to this new variant. And while this increase is not what I would call a surging kind of increase, Um, It sure is one of real concern, and we're watching this one very closely. 
Let me just close out uh, in our neighbor to the north. Uh, I consider our sister country, Canada. Um, it has been interesting to watch the different provinces uh, light up with cases over the course of the last four months. Of course, we've talked about the Ontario experience and what happened in the Toronto area, uh, as well as all the area in Canada, uh, right up to the Michigan border across the river from Detroit. We've talked about the challenges with P1 and the occurrence of outbreaks in uh, British Columbia uh, with the Whistler ski resort outbreak and then what happened in Vancouver. Again, that number came down. But now we're seeing major increased activity in Manitoba. And in fact, right now, they're airlifting patients out of Manitoba to the other Canadian provinces in the state of North Dakota because they are so overwhelmed with cases in Manitoba. And so why, again, the delay in case occurrence in Canada so stretching out over the months, I don't know. Uh, but uh, they continue to see a substantial problem there. So on, in summary, when you ask what's going to happen on a global basis, I think we're going to keep seeing pictures like I just shared with you. Cases go up, cases come down. Where vaccination goes up, cases go down even more, but some cases continue to occur. But we have so many areas in the world where people have not had access to vaccine. The potential for more India-like surges to occur, or more like we've seen in Latin America, are surely going to happen. And uh, I just keep reminding us over and over again, this is all about a humanitarian response to these countries. Yes, it is. But it's also about a strategic response. It's about how do we protect the vaccines for the whole world is we've got to stop variant development. The way we stop that is from having basically unfettered transmission occur in these low and middle income countries. This has to be the highest priority right now for governments around the world. And you've heard a lot of discussion over the course of the past um, several weeks about COVAX and how efficient it is or isn't in moving vaccines. Uh, what's it going to take to get more vaccine to people? Not just deliver the vaccines to the countries, but then how does it actually get used on the ground? We've had multiple reports of large numbers of doses actually uh, going to waste because they, they couldn't get the appropriate refrigeration. Uh, they couldn't uh, get people to take the vaccines once they were reconstituted as mRNA vaccines. And um, We've got just so much more to do, uh, and, and the United States has to play a leadership role in this effort. So let's dive a little further into that B1617.2 variant. Uh, this week, Public Health England put out a report on the variant, which, as you noted, is originated in India and is now causing a growing number of infections in England. Uh, what are we learning about this variant in terms of its transmissibility and and um, and whether it causes more severe illness in people? Well, at the risk of sounding as if I'm repeating myself over the course of recent podcasts, we have to have such respect for these variants. Um, as we have talked about so many times, you know, they came upon us last November as a surprise. Uh, we learned quickly that the mutation changes in these viruses could result in more infectious viruses, could result in viruses that cause more severe disease, and viruses that could evade some aspect of immune protection from either vaccination or from uh, natural infection. And we continue to learn about what it means to live with these variants. Early on, there was a lot of discussion 
about the potential for these uh, variants to evade the immune protection from vaccination or as a result of natural infection immunity. Uh, I think that has actually uh, been somewhat of a more positive note recently, uh, indicating that at least with the mRNA vaccines and even potentially the other vaccines, that there could be some reduction in overall prevention of, of infections. It still does have a substantial impact on the frequency of severe disease, hospitalizations, and deaths. And uh, so I've not seen a variant yet that you know scares us. Uh, completely about uh, what it does in terms of of immunity. But nonetheless, those other two buckets I talked about uh, in terms of more transmissibility and more serious illness, I think are very real. Uh, Right now, work is going on to pin down the characteristics of this B1617.2 and fully understand what it means for the world moving forward. Um, In India, where the variant was first identified, there's been really very little sequencing uh, done to understand just what role B1617.2 has played in their surge, both in terms of the transmission and the severity of illness. There's more robust data available today from the UK, which has released several reports and updates related to uh, B1617.2 over the past week. If you look at the latest UK data, uh, it's very interesting in terms of transmission potential by looking at secondary attack rates, meaning who infected someone else and how many of those people did they infect. And this is all based on contact tracing. Uh, if one looks at uh, uh, B1617.2, it appears to have even a higher secondary attack rate than B117, the original variant of concern that we had with regard to transmission. Uh, In England, if you look at the B117, about 8.1% of the contacts of cases were infected. So in other words, I'm a B117 case. On average, I infect about 8.1% of the contacts around me. With uh, B1617.2, that number is 12.5% of the contacts were infected using the very same kind of criteria. Now, this would suggest that the 617.2 maybe as much as 50% more infectious than B117. There's a caveat that I think is important, and we're trying to understand this. Uh, These studies didn't really control for vaccination status. It could be that the contacts of B1617.2 cases were less likely to be vaccinated. We don't know that, uh, but I think right now there's every reason to be concerned uh, that, in fact, this virus is at the top of the heap right now in terms of transmission potential. Um, If we look at the real-world evidence of its impact in England right now, it's unclear at this time. Uh, There appear to be a number of confounding factors that need to be worked out, as I just talked about. As I just talked about a a moment ago, uh, this variant is the dominant variant in all of England's local uh, areas reporting high case rates. So clearly it's tied to that. What we don't understand is what are the social economic issues that are also occurring among those getting infected. So we need more information there. If we look, for example, in London, um, it is likely the dominant variant there right now, but we haven't seen overall cases increasing nearly as much as we've seen in some of these rural areas. Uh, If we look at vaccine effectiveness, a comment I made just a moment ago, and look at it with regard to symptomatic disease, and B1617.2. With B117, you found vaccine effectiveness of 51% after one dose 
87% after two doses. So that's with B117. If you look at 1617.2, it's only 33.5% after one dose and 81% after two doses. So in the end, 6% reduced. Um, this is still unclear yet exactly uh, looking at the distribution of vaccines and this variant, uh, just what that means. But I think it does suggest that surely uh, with the low effectiveness after one dose of a vaccine, there's been concern raised about what the UK might see moving forward in their deferred second dose strategy. Uh, we now know that there are still many people waiting to get their second dose. This is something we've talked about before in this uh, program is many people we wanted to get vaccinated months ago and said, go with one dose now, follow up with the second dose. The Brits really need to make sure that they follow up with that second dose now, given what appears to be this reduced transmission. So let me just summarize the variance and issue and say, stay tuned. This is a stay tuned moment. Um, we're learning a lot about the variance every week. And uh, there are some weeks when I'm quite convinced after everything I've learned that I do know less than I did the week before. I know you hear me say this often, but it's just the honest place to be. Uh, we still have lots of questions, lots of confusion. Could there be a variant that will emerge one day that will have a major impact on vaccine protection? It's possible. I hope not, but this is something we have to stay on top of. These variants are the curveball. Every pitch could be different. And, you know, if you go to the plate as a baseball player and think that that pitcher is going to throw you only fastballs down the middle and that's all you ever prepare to hit, you know, when they throw that first curveball or screwball in there, uh, you know, that's that can really uh, upset your game. And so that's how I kind of feel with this virus. You know, uh, I don't know which pitch is coming which week with these variants. So let's circle back to Japan, which, as you noted, is among the countries that is currently battling a wave of COVID-19 cases and has only vaccinated a fraction of its population, yet is still planning at this point to host the Olympic Games in July, despite widespread concern from the Japanese public. So, Mike, you co-authored a commentary addressing the safety of the Olympics and the International Olympic Committee's so-called playbooks that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine this week. Uh, what can you tell our listeners about this article? Let me just start by saying that I was very honored to be a part of the authorship uh, list here on this article, which was published on Tuesday of this week by the New England Journal of Medicine entitled Protecting Olympic Participants from COVID-19, the Urgent Need for a Risk Management Approach. The lead author was Dr. Annie Sparrow, who is uh, a world-renowned expert in uh, international health, uh, someone who has just been a privilege to work with her. She also has served as an advisor uh, to Tedros, the director general of the WHO, uh, has a uh, renowned record in terms of her uh, work on international health issues. Also, Lisa Brossau from the uh, SIDRAP uh, was one of the uh, co-authors, as was Bob Harrison, who is with the Division of Occupational Environmental Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. What we tried to lay out in this uh, perspectives was the fact that, as we know, in late July, approximately 11,000 athletes and 4,000 athletic support staff from more than 200 countries will gather for more than two weeks to compete at the Tokyo Olympics. To add some perspective to that, remember that the International Olympic Committee, or the IOC, postponed the Tokyo Olympics in March 2020, a year ago when Japan had 865 active cases of COVID-19. 
against a global backdrop of 385,000 active cases. And everyone, I think, uh, in planning for the Olympics assumed that it would be controlled in 2021 or that by this now vaccination would be widespread. Well, 14 months later, Japan is now in a state of emergency with 70,000 active cases, and globally there are 19 million active cases occurring. We now have variants of concern, which may be much more transmissible, and we know more virulent than the original strain of SARS-CoV-2. And from a vaccine standpoint, less than 5% of Japan's population has been vaccinated, the lowest rate among all the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development countries. We are fortunate that both the Pfizer and BioNTech have offered to donate vaccine for all Olympic athletes, but this offer doesn't ensure that all the athletes will receive the vaccine before the Olympics since vaccine availability and authorization are lacking in more than 100 countries. Some athletes may not take it due to the fact that they don't want to somehow impact on their performance, and, and even though we have no data that would be the case. Or, in fact, for ethical reasons, they may not want it because they believe that healthcare workers and vulnerable people should be authorized first. So we can't even say that vaccine is going to be uh, the option that will, in effect, save the Olympics. The medical community in Japan has been expected to serve as the backbone for medical resources for the Olympics. And over the course of the past week, they have made it known that they are going to be really challenged to do that. Fewer than 50% of them are vaccinated, but more importantly, they don't have enough doctors and nurses in a number of locations in Japan right now just to take care of the patients they have with COVID. They're in a very tough place. I already mentioned that in my introductory comments about Japan as part of the international perspective. But also very important has been the fact that our group spent many, many hours combing through word by word what is called the IOC playbooks. This is really their plan for reducing the transmission of virus uh, at the Olympics. And, you know, it, it's a challenge when you read those. They were really written, first of all, what I would call pre-airborne transmission days, meaning that there are a lot of things in here that are no longer really valid as a primary means for reducing transmission uh, just because of the fact airborne transmission takes on very different aspects of activities to prevent transmission. Uh, it's not simply just being six feet apart. Uh, and we also find their efforts lacking in something such as simple as each country is supposed to apply their own face coverings. And they're encouraged but not required. They don't get into any real aspect of respiratory protection from an environmental standpoint, such as ventilation, where they're asking three people to be housed in a single hotel room. So what we did is we really went through the playbooks as listed and tried to identify all the areas that much more urgent work needs to be done that are based on scientifically rigorous risk assessment how, and how they can reduce that risk even at this late uh, date. We know that uh, if something's not done in the next uh, few weeks, it's not likely to be done before the Olympics. But even just being able to distinguish between high, medium, and low-risk environments and then adjusting accordingly. I think we'd all agree that sailing, archery, equestrian events outside could be considered low-risk. On the other hand, if you look at uh, sports that are held indoors, 
and require very close contact, such as boxing and wrestling, are probably at high risk. We've already had wrestling-related outbreaks here in Minnesota. And so the playbooks really need to address the differences among venues, including non-competition spaces. Uh, you know, where, how do people get from the Olympic Village to their venue? It's in buses. What plans have been made to limit the potential for transmission in those kinds of settings? How are people going to be evaluated on a day-by-day basis with testing? And uh, knowing that from the professional sports activities in the United States, uh, comprehensive testing programs done on a daily basis can really help in identifying cases early in such a way to limit their transmission, what's being done here. And so our hope is that the Olympics can happen. We actually were very careful in this paper not to say cancel them at this point. But the, because in, in part, we understand that the Olympic spirit right now is so important to us. It's one of those few events that can connect all of us as opposed to driving us apart. I think all of us would love to rally around the torch and recognize the values of things that connect us over the value of the things that separate us. So we tried in a spirit of what can be done to have a much safer Olympics happen. But if this doesn't occur in the next several weeks, I think it'll be far too late, and I think it could be a potential disaster with a major super-spreading event for the world. This is not an unprecedented request. Uh, Back during the Olympics uh, in Brazil in 2016, the WHO actually convened an emergency committee to provide guidance ahead of the Olympics there on the Zika virus public health emergency. Why can't we do that now? And so I hope our paper will stimulate the kind of discussion and consideration I think that all of us uh, need to be aware of and and involved with in the sense that every country will be represented here. And this is what we need to do to understand we don't want to turn the Olympics into something that is going to be remembered as a potential disaster as opposed to something that, in fact, is a reason for celebration. Turning back now to the U.S., uh, the country has vaccinated more than half of its adult population, and cases, hospitalizations, and deaths nationwide continue to steadily decline. But there's an interesting article in the Washington Post this week suggesting that if you look at the unvaccinated population, the virus is continuing to spread, the adjusted COVID death rate is similar to what it was two months ago, and the hospitalization rate is as high as it was three months ago. So, Mike, what did you make of this article, and and what was your takeaway from it? One has to begin the discussion on vaccinations in the United States with uh, a note of optimism and congratulatory comments about what we've done. Uh, It is remarkable that we've been able to administer over 287 million doses of vaccine uh, since the beginning of the effort here in in the United States. Um, As you noted, we're now at 50% of the total population vaccinated uh, with at least one dose, 39.5% with all doses. Uh, If we look at the population for those over age 12, which is now the, of course, new benchmark since uh, children down to age 12 have been approved for vaccination, um, we look at 58.6% of that group has been vaccinated with one dose, 46% with two doses. If we look at everyone over age 18, that creeps up a little higher to 61.6% have had at least one dose, 50% have all doses 
And of course, that very critical group in the age population of 65 years of age and older, now we're up to 85.3% have had one dose, 73.9% have had two doses. As much as these numbers are uh, really a wonderful tribute to what's happened, we also have to be honest and keep our eye open as to what hasn't happened yet. And as I've shared with this audience uh, in previous podcasts, we kind of live in a world where it's a vaccinated community and an unvaccinated community. If we look at the uh, 10 states that still are at the lowest uh, vaccination levels, they still are lagging substantially below uh, many of the other states, and they are lacking in a way that leaves them very vulnerable for ongoing surges of cases. And I got to believe that they're still going to happen, whether it's B117, whether it's uh, uh, the variant B1617.2. We're going to see these surges. For example, there are counties in the South where fewer than 20% of the population are fully vaccinated. And that means that we're going to continue to see surges there. But what the Washington Post study did, and I really congratulate them. I think that it was a very unique piece of work. I think a number of media venues like the Washington Post, uh, New York Times, others have really brought additional clarity to the epidemiology of what's happening in our country. And what they did is used a very novel uh, approach by looking at how many people have been vaccinated in a given area, for which we have pretty good data. Then subtracting that number from the total population, then are concluding that that's the unvaccinated population. And they also then added in a margin of error there so that they, uh, if people who were vaccinated uh, weren't fully vaccinated yet at, at a certain time. And that's where they came up with these numbers to indicate that, in fact, we really live in two Americas. We really do see these two different populations, the fully vaccinated or partially vaccinated population, which does continue to increase each week, much slower now than it did a month and a half ago. And then that population, which is not vaccinated, for which we do see this increased occurrence of cases that is actually, uh, if were to be extrapolated to the entire U.S. population, would mean we would see really high numbers. So it just reminds us that when people say, well, if enough people get vaccinated, you know, basically transmission will stop. And it feels like that to many people right now as the case numbers come down. But amongst those who are unvaccinated, this is still a real challenge. And I think it even speaks to the issue of this concept of herd immunity. I think it's going to take a level of vaccination that will never achieve herd immunity in our populations, but it sure can drive transmission down. So I, uh, I, this is just a reminder, this uh, particular uh, effort in the Washington Post, I'd urge you to go review it. We'll provide a link to it on our website here for you. Uh, and I just think that it uh, speaks to the fact of why you want to get vaccinated and not count on having everybody else around you get vaccinated and you not. The debate over the origins of the coronavirus and whether it could have leaked from a laboratory in China continues to fester. This week, the Biden administration issued a formal call for a transparent probe into the origins in a statement to the World Health Organization. Mike, given all the geopolitical challenges, and there are many, how do we get to the bottom of this issue? I have, from the very beginning, 
uh, tried to nuance this issue. Uh, and as so many things that require nuancing with COVID, that's very, very difficult. As you've heard me say, it's often like trying to thread the semi through the needle without scratching the paint. Um, this is one of those. Uh, you know, let me just give you my, uh, again, personal biases on these issues. I come from a world of biosecurity uh, where I've raised concerns in the past, particularly around influenza virus work, about the potential for one, either enhancing an organism to actually be transmitted more readily, uh, to cause more severe disease, uh, this kind of gain of function um, term that's often used, or even one that's dangerous but worked on in a laboratory where it might escape. As I've shared with you in the past, I served for seven years in the National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity here in the United States, which our entire emphasis was on this very kind of discussion about either uh, the potential for enhancing organisms to do things that uh, we'd rather not have them do in real life, but maybe want to understand what those changes might be so that we could anticipate what it would be like if that really happened in Mother Nature, or the potential for any dangerous agent to get out of a laboratory because of some laboratory accident. So I have a natural suspicion, you might say, about uh, the potential risk of this kind of work. Now, having said that, I want to believe I will objectively evaluate whatever information comes forward to say, is that what happened with this particular virus? And the challenge I have right now is I'm less worried about weaponizing the virus as opposed to weaponizing the words to talk about what happened. And I think that that Mother Nature surely could have done this on her own. Um, you know, SARS and MERS were two examples of where Mother Nature did that with the coronavirus, with no one suggesting that there was a man-made element to that. But I'm also open to the fact that could there have been an, a lab accident in particular where it did escape out? But the challenge we have right now has become very personally driven. Um, for what it's worth, uh, there is not any daylight between the comments that Dr. Tony Fauci has said with regards to what he believes happened and what I believe. I think it's clear that this surely could have been a natural occurring event, but we haven't been able to rule out that it somehow was an accidental release out of that lab. And uh, that's different than saying that's what it is. And right now, there are those that want to say this is exactly what happened. The Chinese intentionally did this, or it was unintentional, but they covered it up. Uh, and they're all in that camp. Or those who say there's no way that this could have been an intentional event. Only Mother Nature could have done it. And so I just come back to the fact that it is important to try to understand this if we can, only so we might better anticipate future pandemic emergences with coronaviruses. But I wish we could take the rhetoric down. And I wish the Chinese would be much more transparent. Uh, did, in fact, we have cases occurring in parts of China well before uh, the December recognition in the Wuhan fish market? Um, were there, in fact, ill employees working at the Wuhan Institute of Virology that uh, did uh, happen in that time period immediately before the outbreak began? Uh, all these questions that we still need answered. And what I worry about is it's become such a divisive 
and politically charged issue that we may never find the truth now. And maybe we wouldn't anyway, even with the most open and and comprehensive investigation. But at the same time, uh, I think uh, spending all this time trying to blame one country for whatever is not going to be helpful in getting us to the truth. Um, I've said all along that uh, there were problems with the early investigation, no question about it. But was it a national cover-up? I don't think so. I don't think any more than might have happened here in the United States if, in fact, we had an emergent problem. Uh, You know, the idea that the Chinese didn't have others come in from around the world to help out, I look at what would happen if it happened here in the United States. Would we have invited China and Russia to come in and be part of our investigation? I don't think so. It doesn't mean the Chinese are still not yet accountable for what did happen in those months before uh, December 2019 in communities throughout China. Were there potential cases of a COVID-19-like illness? What blood samples are available today to know and understand what happened? What we really know about what went on inside the laboratory? So I think there's general agreement, whether it's WHO or whether it's our government, whether it's a notable individuals like Tony Fauci, et cetera, that all say, we just want to know. And so we're going to need to get more information. And for the Chinese government to push back on trying to get that information is not going to help anyone. Uh, at the same time, to weaponize our words and to get into this very vicious battle about cover-up uh, and, and you know, did the United States fund the work that ended up causing this? And, you know, are some people fully responsible for all these deaths? I don't think that's helpful either. So I had to take a bet right now on it. I do think that the data still strongly supports uh, the fact that it could have very easily been a real spillover from uh, the natural animal reservoir of, of animals that, that would potentially be infected with the coronavirus. Um, I would also not rule out that it could have been in the laboratory uh, in Wuhan and that there could have been an accident where someone got infected and took it out. Um, I think the, the, for me, the, the former is much more of a likelihood than the latter. And we'll just have to wait and see. And I just hope we can, can uh, somewhat downgrade the rhetoric and upgrade the science. So now to some listener email questions. The first one is from Andrew, who wanted to know more about breakthrough infections. He wrote, what does a breakthrough infection really mean? Does it mean the vaccine has prevented infection or that it has prevented illness? Isn't it an important distinction? It seems a breakthrough means the virus is somehow evading the protections of the vaccine. But what are the COVID vaccines really supposed to do? Are they supposed to help the immune system completely shut down the virus before it can reproduce enough to cause a positive COVID test? Or are the vaccines simply supposed to protect us from illness, even if our vaccinated bodies can still carry the SARS-CoV-2 virus for a period? I'm thinking of the recent case of the Yankees outbreak. Most of the cases were asymptomatic. The media has been calling all of these breakthrough cases, but are they really breakthroughs if they don't cause illness? Are the vaccines working 100% as intended in these cases? And if they are working as intended, maybe we should stop calling them breakthroughs? Well, first of all, there's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> and I, uh, I appreciate the, uh, the depth and the breadth of the question. But let me begin with uh, just some clarity about what do we mean by breakthrough infections? 
just as the word infections indicates, it's not at all necessarily describing clinical illness. It means that after being vaccinated and having an adequate period of time, i.e. more than two weeks after my last dose, I should have a level of protection that should keep me from becoming infected. We in public health would be very willing to take the outcome of just avoidance of illness, and particularly serious illness, hospitalizations, and deaths. But that is a different thing than actually getting infected. So let's just be clear. When we talk about breakthrough infections, we're talking about people who are infected, and they may even be asymptomatic. Uh, and surely that is the, the potential uh, with what we're seeing nationally of individuals who are found to be positive on screening testing that's going on in workplaces or schools or places like that who are fully vaccinated. The case of the Yankees was just that. They were not uh, ill, and they were found to be positive, meaning that they did get reinfected but didn't have clinical signs and symptoms. So breakthroughs do relate to infections with further descriptions, of course, of who gets sick and who doesn't. Now, the challenge has been is what do we know about these breakthrough infections? Why are they occurring? And what is their severity? What is the proportion of those individuals that have only asymptomatic reinfection or infection for the first time after having been vaccinated? And what does it mean in terms of serious illness, hospitalizations, and deaths? I've talked about that in a previous podcast and tried to cover what we might expect to see, knowing that if you're vaccinating millions and millions of people, even if only a small percentage of those people are getting re-exposed, meaning I vaccinate just a number, 100 people, and only 8 to 10% get exposed over the next few months, that's then 8 to 10 out of that 100. And of those, what percentage actually then go on and actually have a breakthrough, which we know today is a very, very small percentage of that. So trying to understand breakthroughs, though, is important because of potential of who some of the individuals are that are getting vaccinated. Number one is if I'm immune compromised or immune suppressed, do I have a higher likelihood of having a breakthrough infection after vaccination? And we believe the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, this is a concern. I've raised it here in previous podcasts. We're going to continue to address this. You are some of the people that are in no man's land, and I feel very badly about that. Uh, we need to get you more information about what it means to actually have any number of, of immune suppressive situations, whether it be from drug-related therapies you're taking or as a result of some impact that you've had on your immune system uh, through other disease processes. So this is one area that we have a challenge, is understanding why breakthroughs occur and then describing what the seriousness of those breakthroughs are. So uh, if I'm someone who's immune suppressed because of a certain drug, I'm vaccinated, I have a breakthrough, is it infection only? Is it illness? Is it severe illness? Is it death? And so this is a very important part of what we're trying to describe here. And I think that it was, I think, to some surprise when the CDC announced this past week that, in fact, they'd had over 9,245 breakthrough infections and in fully vaccinated people reported uh, to them. And when you look at that, you say, oh, my, that's a lot of people. Well, first of all, let's be clear. That actually is only the tip of the iceberg because in Minnesota alone, 
we had 2,249 breakthrough cases reported out of 2 million people who were vaccinated, grant you. That's less than 0.1%. But our 2,249 compared to the 9,245 reported to CDC, you can see <laughs> there's got to be a lot more out there than are occurring. And why are ours not fully counted in the CDC numbers? Is because CDC recently decided that they would only address people who had severe illness or were hospitalized as breakthrough cases, making the point that, you know, this is all that we were attempting to do is make sure that we avoid serious illness. Now, I happen to disagree with that position. I think that that's not where we ought to be right now. We should be looking at every potential breakthrough, knowing that that's going to be a lot more work. But that's why we got more additional public health funding was to do that. And with many fewer cases out there, where are we right now using our public health teams to do follow-up? We should be working to set up systems where if I am found to have become infected and I have been previously vaccinated, we should investigate that case immediately, even if it's milder illness. We should do everything to get a hold of the viral material, the swab that was used to, in this case with a PCR test, uh, and to make sure that those viruses get sequenced. Right now, less than 5% of the breakthrough cases are being sequenced because right now there's a big delay that often occurs between becoming ill, getting tested, having the test results get to a state or local health department, having then the results recognize that this is a vaccinated person, and then going back to the lab and getting the sample. To date, only about 5% of all the people who are breakthrough cases have actually had a viral sample obtained and sequenced, which we should be looking at these to find out even in mild people, are the variants having an impact here? Is it more likely to be occurring uh, as a result of some underlying immune suppression that is occurring? And while I surely understand the importance of looking at the most severely ill individuals uh, and, and reporting on them, I think at the same time, it really is inadequate to only look at those individuals and not the entirety of what's happening. So I think we're missing very, very important data right now uh, that is a, taking place in our communities that could be really important to us in terms of understanding a new emerging variant situation. The next question we received this week was in regard to comments you made during last week's episode. This one is from Robert, who wrote, I have a question about your comment that you do not want to be in a restaurant, movie, etc. with an unvaccinated person. I assume your concern for unvaccinated people is that they will become infected, which makes sense to me. However, are you also concerned that you might be exposed and get COVID-19 even though you were vaccinated? Does your concern about being with an unvaccinated person also include being outdoors with sufficient distance from an unvaccinated person? If you could clear that up, I'd appreciate it. I have a good friend who refuses to get vaccinated, and I am concerned about meeting with him even outdoors. So, Mike, this question really gets to the issue of personal risk assessment, doesn't it? Uh, thank you for raising that question. Uh, I think this is, is a very important issue, and I want to be really clear about it. Um, what you're hearing from my, me, this is my personal voice as well as my professional head speaking. Uh, when I talk about my concern being in closed spaces with unvaccinated people, I'm actually talking about the risk of them transmitting the virus to me, even though I'm fully vaccinated. I've just got done sharing with you information on breakthroughs. 
They're very rare. They're very rare, but they occur. And this goes back to a point that I made last week also about the concept of immune passports, this general concept of knowing that someone has been vaccinated, which while the vaccination status may not be a perfect marker of absolute protection, it surely gives you a very, very, very high level of security that that person is not going to get infected and transmit the virus to you or someone else. So you know what? I don't want to go to a restaurant or sit at a bar or go to a theater and sit next to somebody I don't know who says, I'm not going to get vaccinated. And they very well may be in that earliest stages of being infected and infectious. And they could infect me as a breakthrough case. Now, all of that is a relatively rare phenomenon to occur, grant you, but look at how many cases we continue to see uh, transmitted in our communities, and we do have these breakthrough cases. So while, you know, I'd like to be concerned about this individual sitting next to me at a theater who's unvaccinated, you know, my real issue is don't expose me to this virus. I've done everything I can to minimize my likelihood of getting infected. And this is why I think immune passports or some kind of a sense of this program will actually take off despite many in the political world saying, no, it won't happen on my watch. Just this past week, another state passed legislation signed into law by the governor prohibiting immune passport-like situations from occurring. I think this is really misplaced. Just like, as I said before, uh, taking the Clean Indoor Air Act uh, movement that occurred in the 1970s and 80s, uh, getting smoking out of our bars and restaurants, uh, was not welcomed by those smokers. I understand that. But when you look at the private sector impact, it was just the opposite of what many people predicted. So many more people who didn't smoke, who are now willing to come out to restaurants and bars or go to locations where they would have otherwise spent a smoke-filled night, are now willing to do it because of the fact that you can't smoke. I think there are many people, and I know them in my own personal life, who would actually pay more to go to a restaurant or a bar or fly in an airplane where everyone in that environment were basically guaranteed through some kind of, of a immune passport to show that they've been vaccinated. Now, that doesn't mean people who aren't vaccinated can't go to other bars and restaurants if they want, but they are well described then is we'll take any comers. So let me be really clear. I care about the person who's not vaccinated. I want to do everything I can to get them vaccinated and work with them however possible. But in my public place, I don't want to breathe their air. Okay. I don't want to breathe their air. And uh, I hope that people take that point of view and say, you know what, I'm not here to shun you. I'm not here to, you know, somehow uh, make you feel like you're, you know, less a member of our society, but I don't want to breathe your air. Get vaccinated and it'll be a different situation. And so I, I know that sounds hard, but it's, it's important. As far as the outdoor air, let me just come back to say that under most conditions, outdoor air is the kind of the solution to pollution is dilution approach. Okay. It's going to, the virus will dissipate readily in outdoor air. And so if someone's not vaccinated and I'm standing back some distance, you know, six or more feet, not because of droplets, just let the air move the virus and, and dilute it out, then you can have that conversation and you can go for the walks if you maintain those distances. Where my one concern about outdoor air has come in, I shared uh, this very scenario with you last week about the outbreak that occurred at a concert 
we had here in Minnesota an outdoor concert last July 4th where people were packed like sardines into an open area where they were shoulder to shoulder dancing, you know, singing with the band and spending uh, three or more hours with there. And there was an outbreak that occurred of over 31 cases uh, in the people who went to that concert. And so that is the rare exception where with outdoor area, you're standing close to each other. You're not moving from, you know, one location to another. And there was, there was a super spreader in that crowd and you're all shoulder to shoulder nearby, then you could have transmission. Those situations are going to be rare, but with summer coming, they surely could happen. Mike, can you share our latest pandemic act of kindness with the listeners? This is uh, another one of those wonderful family stories uh, sent to us by Michelle. And she wrote, for my act of kindness, I wanted to share a story about my family. My parents will be 86 in July, and they live independently in their own home over 400 miles from me. Throughout this crisis, they have made a point to stay in contact with their friends, especially those of whom live alone. Their donut shop group would get donuts and meet in the parking lot in a circle when they couldn't dine inside. They would invite friends to sit on their porch when their friends needed some human contact. My husband, two sons, aged 30 and 32, and daughter-in-law, aged 33, are all vaccinated, as are my parents. So we planned a weekend to gather at the house. I told mom to make a wish list of things they needed done. We spent the weekend preparing food, deep cleaning their house, and cleaning up their yard and planting flowers. All the things on their wish list was completed. They were so appreciative, and the kids said, we need to do this every six months. I feel so thankful to still have my parents, and it was such a joy to give them hugs and kisses. Michelle. You know, we picked this particular uh, act of kindness as to remind all of us that there are those things yet we can still do with our families and our friends. But it just takes that creative imagination to think about, let's do it. So to think about spending this kind of a family weekend uh, and that hadn't been done before is just, to me, again, another one of the opportunities in the pandemic, not just one of the disadvantages. And so, Michelle, thank you for sharing this with us. It, uh, it was a great example. I hope it motivates others uh, in the uh, podcast family here to think about how might I do something like this with one of my family members or friends and to be able to, to experience this kind of a weekend where you're involving three generations uh, and that it uh, allows for not only good feelings, good times, but also some good things got done. So Michelle, thank you very much. And we would love to continue hearing about those pandemic acts of kindness. So if you want to share them with us, or if you want to share memories of a loved one, friend, or colleague who died during the pandemic, please email us at ostromupdate at umn.edu. Your closing thoughts today, Mike, on our last weekly episode of the podcast? It's hard to believe we've gotten to this place where after this many podcasts, um, we are now talking about a new format or moving forward. Uh, again, we're going to be here uh, at just every two weeks instead of every week. We hope you'll stay with us and that the information we're providing you is still useful to you, even though it's uh, going to be every two weeks. Uh, we've thought a lot about this, and, and um, we appreciate this very unique uh, relationship we have with you 
as a podcast family and what we at SIDRAP uh, hold true is the important contributions that we can make during this pandemic. And I think that the, today's uh, words that I would leave you with really reflect that feeling of that we're still together. We're still in this. Okay, we're not gone. We may look a little differently, but we're not gone. So I've actually gone back to the oldies but goodies again uh, and uh, picked out a, a some words that I used in the January 21st episode, An Imperfect Storm. The song lyrics I've chosen today are from a 1945 Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, Carousel. It's been recorded by numerous artists over the years, including Frank Sinatra and Judy Garland, Elvis Presley, and Jerry and the Pacemakers. It's also become well-known in England as the anthem of the Liverpool Football Club, and in the early days of the pandemic became the anthem of support for medical staff, first responders, and those in quarantine. And of course, I'm sure you're all already aware of what I'm talking about. The title of the song is You'll Never Walk Alone. When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of a storm, there's a golden sky and the sweet silver song of a lark. Walk on through the wind, walk on through the rain, though your dreams be tossed and blowing. Walk on, walk on, with hope in your heart, and you'll never walk alone. You'll never walk alone. Walk on, walk on, with hope in your heart, and you'll never walk alone. You will never walk alone. I hope you feel that about uh, our relationship, uh, our podcast family and the team at SIDRAP. We're still here. You'll never walk alone. We will be with you every other week, uh, and we will uh, continue to very much value and appreciate your input, your thoughts, your questions. I'm sorry that we can't do more to uh, answer all of them or to respond to each of them. We'll also each week continue to remember, though, that all the numbers I talked about today are real people. They're someone's father, mother, grandfather, son, daughter, friend, cousin. They're people. And uh, that's going to be important as we go forward that we just not get so lost into the numbers we forget in the first instance where each of these numbers come from. And last but not least, as we get into some of these very divisive issues around masks and, and you know, what's happening in our communities and opening up and feeling uh, unsure of ourselves, all we can do is rely on those most basic instincts that I think will serve us well. And those are kindness, patience, understanding. You all know that that's uh, what gets us through. And so I leave you on this podcast with one last uh, request. Help get people vaccinated. Everybody has to go find their two people this week and get them vaccinated, okay? And always remember kindness, patience, and your safety are first and foremost. Be kind, be patient, be safe. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Osterholm Update. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. And be sure to keep up with the latest COVID-19 news by visiting our website, sidrap.umn.edu. The Osterholm Update is produced by Maya Peters, Corey Anderson, and Angela Ulrich.